Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with functional medicine doctor Sunja Swig and host Michael Lerner. Welcome to the new school at Commonweal. I am the interpreter for Michael. Welcome to TNS. I have lost my voice today due to a cold and cough, but no worries, this will go well. We are all being held in the room by a greater force, the force of our intention to be of service to people who are suffering, including, I'm sure, many in this room. So let's be joyful and relaxed about this opportunity and let us all hold it together for what it is, an opportunity to be creative and to serve in new ways. I'm especially grateful that my friend and colleague, Kira Epstein, has agreed to translate for me in our conversation today. Kira is the longtime coordinator of TNS, as well as communications manager for Commonweal. She shares my interest in integrative and functional medicine and has advanced training in herbal medicine. I have a list of questions prepared, but I may add to them on my computer and ask Kira to read them. We're deeply delighted to have Dr. Sanja Schwab with us today and his wife, Leah Gartner. Sanja is among the most widely respected integrative and functional medicine practitioners in the Bay Area. So he'd like me to read the bio here. Sanja is an expert in complex chronic illnesses which require rigorous investigation and management. He's been studying, teaching, and practicing integrative and functional medicine for more than 20 years. Sanja received his BA from the University of California, Berkeley. He attended medical school at the University of California, Irvine, UCI, where he helped design and lead the complementary and alternative medicine curriculum. Sanja completed his family medicine registry at the University of California, San Francisco, family practice residency program in Santa Rosa, California, where he helped found the Integrative Medicine Fellowship Program. Sanja is the founding chair of the Integrative Medicine Committee for the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society and serves on the Scientific Advisory Board for the Bay Area Lyme Foundation. In 2014, he launched the California Center for Functional Medicine with his friend and colleague, Chris Kresser. Um, I think, is that the end? Yeah. Okay, wonderful. All right, Sanja Schwag, welcome to the New School of Commonweal. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Let's start with a definition. What is functional medicine? Yeah, so functional medicine is a, a chance for us to look more broadly at uh, how we can provide care to patients. And um, we take into account all of the modalities that are available to the allopathic Western medical doctor. Um, and we also have in our toolkit you know, all of the integrative medicine modalities. And we're always trying to think about why things are happening, what's behind the final disease or illness that we see in front of us, and what are the common pathways that are leading to that. So it's kind of a chance to take a step back, take a, a big picture look, and to really think about, um, you know, root cause as opposed to just trying to band-aid or manage the symptoms of the, of the condition that the person has. Okay, so Michael, you'll interrupt me if you have any further questions, right? Okay. All right. 
So doesn't functional medicine place a major emphasis on going to the root cause of the disease? Yeah, absolutely. So in functional medicine, the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is one of the main training programs, there are, there are several. Um, they're a really excellent one. Um, but they have a model of a tree, right? And so, um, you know, out on the outer leaves and branches of this tree are where most of us experience care with our primary care doctors, integrative medicine, pediatrics, specialists, all the different gastroenterology, neurology, endocrinology, you know, what you'll get when you go to uh, one of the you know, health centers or Kaiser or UCSF, et cetera. And these doctors are always, you know, Western medicine teaches us basically that, you know, try to get the story usually relatively quickly because time is tight in the, in the, in the experience, in the encounter, um, which by the way, is frustrating for both doctor and patient. So get the story quickly, try to fit it into, uh, you know, rubric or a sort of a algorithm that we're taught in medical school, come up with what's called a differential diagnosis. You're sort of working list of diagnoses. And then from there, jump to a treatment. And, and really the main options that are available are a prescription drug, um, a procedure, a surgery, some kind of imaging, and maybe, you know, if the doctor, you know, physical therapy, Maybe if they're a little bit more forward-thinking, they'll think about nutritionists, et cetera. But you know, basically the idea then is that out of these outer leaves and branches, we're dealing with these final manifestations of this long process that has led this person to this point in time. And all the therapies that are generally prescribed in the allopathic Western medicine setting are really to kind of like prune those final manifestations back a little bit. Like, you know, clean up the outer leaves and branches, make the tree look a little neater, um, try to suppress things down, control, you know, control the immune system, control the blood pressure, um, control the blood sugar, you know, decrease the cholesterol, lipids, et cetera. So they're always, you know, trying to kind of prune things back. Functional medicine, on the other hand, you know, we're looking at the base inputs as our primary goal, as our primary interest. And, you know, so what are those root inputs? We're thinking about diet, we're thinking about um, stress. We're thinking about you know the the um, quality and balance of the person's microbiota, microbial balance. Are there any hidden infections that the person is dealing that's affecting their their organism? Um, you know the you know pollution, the water we're drinking, the air we're breathing, all of those factors. And so then those root inputs, those root cause inputs, are then filtered up through the individual's genetics through their psycho-spiritual mental outlook and, and going all the way back to, you know, when they were in their mom's belly, you know, you know, epigenetics programming during pregnancy, early childhood. We think a lot about, um, you know, trauma, adverse childhood events, how that affects that person's predispositions and the terrain really then of which from there, you know, going up the trunk of this tree, you then develop imbalances. Things start to go awry, usually well before, many, many, many years even, before the person finally has a diagnosable condition, right? Then you get signs and symptoms, and from signs and symptoms, then you develop to a diagnosable disease, again, which is where our system is usually acting. Mm -hmm. So it's really taking a step back, big picture, looking farther back in time. You know, we're, we want to know everything that's happened to somebody from, you know, when they were in their mom's belly to early childhood. My visits are always, you know, sort of walking forward in time. We want to create that timeline because everything's significant, right? We don't live in isolation. So how is that different from integrative medicine? 
So integrative medicine in some ways is similar. Um, you know, again, the functional medicine toolkit includes all of the integrative medicine modalities, right? Um, you know, as a functional medicine doctor, um, I don't personally, I'm not trained in acupuncture, for example, so I don't practice acupuncture. I'm not trained in osteopathic manipulation, even though I wish I worked. I think it's amazing. You know, so I don't practice it in my office, but I'll send people to these resources. I'll, I'll use them as part of my larger toolkit and, and get support for that. Um, I think that integrative medicine, you know, so there's been a, you know, from when I was in undergrad and, and then um, medical school at UC Irvine, and, and I, I, I spent time helping out with the Susan Samueli Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. So, you know, back then we're using that name. We're using Complementary Alternative Medicine, shortened to CAM. Um, and you know, it's a little awkward. And we're, there's a lot of there's been a lot an evolution over the years of what do we call this thing, right? I think that the the term integrative medicine is good, right? Because it's talking about integrating all these different aspects. But functional medicine means a little bit more to me, meaning, you know. For example, the UCSF Center for Integrative Medicine, I think they do great work. However, I think it's a little more surface in, 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 sometimes. They're maybe focusing on one or two modalities. They're saying, okay, you have XYZ condition. Maybe we should have you do some biofeedback or some hypnosis, or you should see an acupuncturist, right? Functional medicine is, again, uh, more systemic, systematic, I should say. Um, and we're using those tools, but we're, we're marrying that to um, comprehensive diagnostics um, comprehensive treatment protocols that, again, are constantly trying to, you know, basically keep our eye on as many different parameters as we can, right? So it's it's um, it's very comprehensive and um, it's very science-based. Like, you know, to be a functional medicine doctor, you really have to dig back into a lot of the core science that we learned in med school, biochemistry, pharmacology, genetics, you know. So, um, again, I think it includes integrative medicine, but takes it up a few notches. So um, as we read in your biography, you're among the most advanced uh, functional medicine practitioners in the Bay Area. Thank you. You've helped dear friends of Michael's with very complex chronic health issues. When did you decide to move out of conventional medicine and into integrative and functional medicine? When I first, you know, kind of woke up to it, I think was in high school, and I remember, okay, I think I want to go into medicine, and um, I went to high school here in um, San Rafael. I grew up in Point Reyes, oh, wow. um, and my my upbringing. I also spent six years of my childhood in India, and so my childhood was, um, you know, very much infused with you know healthy diet, organic eating you know, clean air, clean water, um, use of homeopathic medicines, use of Ayurvedic medicines when we were in India. Um, and so the default for my family was always go for the integrative side, right, first. And sure, we, you know, uh, Dr. Mike Witte in, in Point Reyes Station was my, my doctor. Um, Dr. Witt um, in Point Reyes um, delivered me, you know, so, but, and, and, and I, you know, we certainly accessed, um, um, conventional medicine, but again, you know, if we could, we always defaulted towards that integrative side. So for me, it wasn't so much a question of when did I pivot out of conventional into integrative. It was more that I decided I wanted to go into medicine and I knew that I had to do integrative medicine if, or, or functional medicine as that evolved over time. 
And there's multiple touch points along the way. I remember in uh, medical school and residency um, where I had like a, some reckoning moments. I was like, okay, this plan better work out because if it doesn't, I don't think I want to do what I see everyone doing. I don't think I could survive, right? Um, especially, you know, working in the hospital settings, which are, are really difficult, really toxic, intense environments. Um, and so, you know, it was really, uh, you know, I, so it's all the way through medical school and, and through residency, whenever I had the chance, right? So you get electives here and there, you have projects you have to do, but every single chance I had, I did those on an integrative medicine topic or with an integrative medicine doctor, functional medicine doctor. I had the, you know, really fortune and good luck of connecting with Brian Bouch through a family member um, before I went to med school. And so I kind of connected with him and I would track with him over time and basically keep asking him the question and thinking in my mind of, how do I get to do what you're doing? Because that's what I want to do. And so, you know, fortuitously, straight out of residency, I joined his practice at Hill Park Medical Center and just built from there. Yeah, so Brian Bouch, um, again, who was the medical founder and medical director of Hill Park Medical Center was the first medical director of Commonweal. So that was, what, early to mid-70s? I guess, (laughs) mid-70s, yeah. Yeah, so another wonderful pioneer with you. And it was really an honor to work with him and learn a ton and just, you know, such a wonderful man and mentor. I really think of him as a mix of friend, doctor, and father figure. You know, he taught me a lot of what I do. Michael just had a conversation with Brian, which is an honor website as well. I don't know where Brian is. He might be out there. I sent him the link for the stream. So if you're out oh, there, good. Brian. <laughs> Excellent. What range of conditions do you see in your practice? Yeah, we see a really wide range. Um, Mark Hyman, who is um, another big pioneer in the functional medicine space, um, his euphemism was that, you know, the patient's who um, have a whole list of medical problems are the people who come to see the holistic doctor, right? So we see really complicated cases um, for the most part. Um, A lot of um, gastrointestinal issues, um, irritable bowel, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disorders, um, a lot of um, fatigue illnesses, you know, for a variety of of reasons, whether it's adrenal or uh, chronic persistent infections from bacterial to viral, et cetera. We see a lot of autoimmune illnesses. That's a big piece of what we do. Um, and of course, you know, that can be driven by a number of different factors. Um, so yeah, so a lot of the, a lot of the sort of medical mystery cases, people have seen 10 or 15 doctors on the average and haven't been figured out, haven't really been solved or helped. Um, and those are the folks who, who come to us. Yeah. So which of those conditions respond most readily to functional medicine? Yeah, so, you know, it's an interesting question. It's, I, I think that, you know, functional medicine really shines in, in that setting of, you know, things aren't going according to plan, you know, the organism, the person in front of us um, who we're working with is not responding in a linear fashion to what various doctors have tried. You know, they may, might have an atypical, you know, insert diagnosis here, right? You know, so those are the cases that, that we really um, love working on, you know, and um, 
we don't always know, right? So thinking about that model of the tree, like it's actually a little bit less important as to what the actual diagnosis is. And it's more important than to, you know, cast a wide net of curiosity and also of testing, right? So kind of looking for any signal that we can find. And whatever you find, you work on it. And we don't wait, we don't, and hopefully people get better, right? Certainly not everybody gets all the way better. But I, you know, absolutely most people who we see get better to a certain degree, right? And some are dramatic and some are more subtle. Um, but I think it's just that commitment to um, keeping an open mind, you know, keeping all options on the table and, um, and being open. Yeah, just it's a very collaborative model with patients, which is really fun for me. Let's give it. Okay. <clears throat> so... How did you come to have a major focus on Lyme disease? Yeah, so uh, before we were married, my wife Leah and I were, um, we spent some time in upstate New York at Cornell where Leah was doing her master's degree in ethnobotany. And we didn't know it at the time, but looking back in hindsight, she was infected with Babesia, a co-infection as well as Lyme disease when we were there. Um, saw a bunch of doctors, you know, no one ever tested for Lyme disease or talked about it. You know, fast forward 10 years, you know, we've gone through med school and residency at this point. And it was after a second exposure that she had actually when we were camping up in Mendocino, mm-hmm. um, that now she developed a symptom picture, which was classic for Lyme disease. And it still took a few different visits for that to be diagnosed, actually. It was a, another functional medicine colleague of mine, um, Wynne Azra Bertrand, who you actually interviewed on this stage. I came to that event a number of years ago. Um, I was working, you know, mentoring with him at the time and telling him what was going on. And he said, uh-oh, you know, I think this could be Lyme disease. He came over, he's very gracious, came to our house, talked with us. And, you know, he was pretty convinced by the time he left our house and recommended a certain set of tests, which we did. And, you know, Leah was one of the lucky ones in that regard in that the tests were very positive. Like, yes, you know. But interestingly, also, at that point, they showed um, that it wasn't a recent thing. You know, there was an element of the recent factor, but there was also a longer-term exposure that happened on a variety of different tests that we did. And so that's when we kind of backtracked and started looking at the, the trail of evidence over time. And, you know, so starting to dig into that was a really intense transition for both of us. I remember right at the time when Leah was diagnosed, um, it just so happened that the conference for the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, or ILADS, was being held in San Francisco, like literally that next weekend. And I had plans to go to Texas for a different conference, which I canceled, went to ILADS. And I just vividly remember that weekend. I mean, I was in this kind of, you know, very activated, very stressed state because of what we were dealing with. Um, and so I remember being grateful and on the one hand for the information I was receiving, but also pretty overwhelmed. You know, this is a whole new area that we had never learned about in med school and residency. And it's pretty scary, right? A lot of really um, <clears throat> intense stories and um, really intense treatments. You know, it's almost like a, you know, the doctors that I, I heard speak were talking about really intensive antibiotic protocols and side effects. And um, so... You know, from that point, um, it was, you know, I think it was, I liken it to the frog in the, pot, in the pot of water, right? You kind of just get used to this increasing level of intensity over time. Um, and, you know, we think, you know, we talk about, you know, 
once started learning about it, started digging into it, started, you know, treating patients, working with Leah and her doctors. And um, once I started getting more comfortable with that, people started hearing about it. People started, you know, knowing that I would be willing to talk about it and address it. Um, and so gradually over time, my practice transitioned, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it t- a lot, that's a common story. I think a lot of people who um, do this work have a personal connection to it because of it. You know, it takes you kind of have to go down the rabbit hole in terms of research and investigation, and um, you know, you, you don't you don't know what's there until you have a, a kind of a deeper personal motivation to really dig into it. Yeah. So uh, we understand there are two distinct theories of Lyme disease. Can you describe those? Yeah, we have a tough situation uh, in our country and in the world. Um, There's a situation which we call it the Lyme Wars, right? And there's two basic divide. There's a basic divide. There's two basic camps um, to oversimplify a little bit, but um, you know the the mainstream powers that be, CDC, IDSA, which is the Infectious Disease Society of America maintain very firmly that yes, Lyme disease exists, that it's actually kind of hard to get, and that if you do get it, um, and, um, you know, the treatments will take care of it. And all you need is two weeks, maybe four weeks, if they're feeling generous, of antibiotics. And then you've killed the bacteria and whatever else is happening to you is no longer from an active infection. That's their position. Um, and on the other hand, you have folks like myself and um, you know, our, our, in our work and, and um, increasing numbers of folks who are realizing like, mm, you know, that story doesn't really add up. Um, you know, and if you look at the basic biology of the, you know, so, so Lyme disease means a few different things, you know, in the very single, you know, focused essence, we're talking about a single bacteria of Borrelia burgdorferi, which is a spirochete bacteria, but it's also come to be a bigger meaning in society. And it means, you know, Lyme plus other, you know, co-infections that you can contract from a tick, plus the fact that this becomes a multi-system illness that can affect any different part of the human's body. Um, so, you know, the, the, the folks that do this kind of work realize the complexity and we realize how amazingly smart these bacteria are and how they can evade the, I mean, they're, they're beautiful in the complexity and, and how, um, you know, how well designed they are for doing what they do. And, and they can persist, um, they can evade the immune system, you know, they can be affected by the antibiotics, but then shape shift and hide out and, um, and so what's, you know, exciting on the one hand is that there's a lot of research that's happening now that's proving this, that's proving, you know, that you can, you know, for example, our colleague Monica Embers at Tulane has done some amazing work on a variety of different animal models, but especially macaque monkeys, showing that, you know, if a monkey's affected with Lyme disease by a tick bite um, and you delay the treatment, um, and you treat, treat them with anywhere from one to four months of either single or multiple antibiotics that, and then let them be, you can test them, 
you know, at a good time distance later, up to 10 months or a year later, and they'll still show positivity for those spirochetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think we're starting to see a little bit of uh, coming together. Um, there's a number of different research efforts that are happening at a, a variety of different universities now. I think the writing's on the wall in terms of how complex and, and that this is a real problem. Um, and I think that we're going to see more and more of those um, naysayers who are kind of saying that that this is not a big problem. I think we're going to see more and more of them coming over, you know, coming into the fold. But to be honest, it's um, it's been really vexing and it's been really confusing. And, and as a doctor, it's been stressful. You know, it's like my er- early years that I was doing this, it was... Um, you kind of have looking over your shoulder the whole time. Like, am, is this okay? Am I, am I going to get in trouble? You know, my you know, doctors losing their licenses, especially on the East coast. And it was very political. There's a lot of ego and pride involved. And, um, and so we're seeing a, a bit of a shift now and there's some more protections happening at the state and, and local government levels, um, which is encouraging. Um, but again, I think that some of the, my hope is that some of those researchers you know, this persistence theory and some of the new research that's coming out, I'm hoping it gives them a chance to kind of say, well, I didn't know about that. So maybe if that's what's happening, I can kind of get on board. And, um, but it's still really a complicated problem. So I'm going to step off the, the list here for just a second. Um, you know, I'm hearing you speak from, from the perspective of the physician. And I'm just wondering, what is it, the people that come into your clinic for treatment are probably just as vexed and frustrated as you are. And I'm just wondering, yeah. what is the first thing that you kind of say to a patient when they come in? Yeah, one of the f- first things that I want to convey to people when they come in is, I believe you. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? I mean, deep breath. And that's just... It's so sad to me and it's so frustrating when these people come in and they've been struggling for over a decade frequently and they've seen, you know, 15 doctors at the best specialty centers in the world and they've been told there's nothing wrong with you, you know, and sometimes that's the gentler side. Sometimes they're told, you know, it's in your head and you should see the psychiatrist and, you know, obviously you're making this all up and, you know, so... For me, one of the one of my favorite things about my job is being the person who believes and who says, you know what, I can't tell you for sure what exactly it is that's causing you to be in your current situation. We're going to look for a lot of different things. I can't tell you with certainty that it's Borrelia or Bartonella or Babesia or viruses or you know what have you. Um, but I can tell you that we're going to be doing a bunch of testing. We're going to be trying a bunch of different things and, you know, that I want feedback from you about what you're experiencing and that we're going to work together on this. And, and that just seeing that like sigh of relief and the shoulders drop. And then, um, that's, that's definitely one of the best parts of my job. How long is your, uh, usual appointment? Yeah, so that's a uh, we we you know so this takes time doing this kind of medicine takes a lot of time and that's a interesting thing that we could jump into because we're working really hard at our clinic to sort of redesign the model and think about um, ways to make the process better and more comprehensive. But um, the way my workflow works right now is the patient will you know request to be a new patient. 
Um, and then they'll first see, uh, talk with our health coach nutritionist. She'll do a comprehensive intake. We call it the initial consult. Um, document, you know, review the whole history, document the whole timeline, um, and order some initial tests, usually some of the basic functional medicine tests, looking at the balance of their gut, microbiota, looking for, um, you know, different hormonal adrenal imbalances, um, sometimes, you know, uh, other aspects of the, the functional medicine workup, things that are, I think, you know, information I want right from the start. And and then, you know, they'll track with the nutritionist still while they're waiting to get those tests done and see me and start working on some of those root inputs, right? Let's make sure your diet is optimized. Let's get you on a whole foods reset challenge where we take out the top trigger foods. You know, let's get you meditating. Let's get you doing some brain healing, emotional healing, brain retraining. You know, let's make sure your movement patterns are, are appropriate. Let's make sure your sleep is appropriate. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Sunja Swig and host Michael Lerner. So then when I see them for the first visit, which is a, usually a 90-minute visit, I'll review the history, um, but they'll have a chance now to have had usually you know, six weeks to eight weeks of time trying out these interventions, which I think are foundational, right? So a lot of times they'll start this uh, reset diet and, and it'd be a very anti-inflammatory approach, and a certain subset of their symptoms will layer off and they'll go from, you know, 30% functionality up to 60 or 70%, right? That information is super valuable because now we're seeing that, you know, not everything has to be treated with a pill, whether it's a supplement or a drug, right? Some of this is just resetting on its own by cleaning up the, the base inputs. Um, but also it's really nice for the patient because they realize the, that there's things that are in their control. So much of the time, you know, um, folks feel like um, and it's a mix because this is an illness that requires people to become very, very involved in their health. But, um, you know, the, you know, a lot of our medical system works almost as if, you know, we're taking our car to the car mechanic. It's like, drop it off, you fix it and let me know when it's ready. Right. So um, we want to flip that around and 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 bring it bring the, that person into the fold, have them be motivated, see that the you know the importance of those base basic uh, behavior change aspects, and that they have some control on what's happening to them. So uh, we wanted to understand a little bit more about the difference and relationships between Lyme disease, chronic fatigue, and fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chronic fatigue syndrome or um, chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome, um, it's, it's some newer names being bantered about, and fibromyalgia, um, I don't really like as diagnoses. Um, I don't think it really means anything, right? You know, so fibromyalgia means um, you're tired and you're achy. Stop, <laughs> right? And, you know, but why, right? So in a way, these diagnoses are a little bit dangerous because it gives the specialists and the allopathic doctors a stopping point. And they say, well, you have fibromyalgia. So here, take this SSRI you know, antidepressant or take this you know, neuropathic pain modulating medication because that's what my drug reference says we do for fibromyalgia. Because, you know, so 
I don't, I, I, so I think, and they stopped really thinking about it at that point. They stopped looking for other answers, right? Um, I think chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia are caused by a lot of the other things that we're talking about. Not always, but frequently chronic infections like Lyme disease or co-infections or viruses. There's a lot of work being done out of Stanford looking at the connection of viruses with chronic fatigue, um, you know, with Dr. Jose Montoya. Um, but really, you know, I think that these sort of systemic illnesses are, um, are really just an indication that enough, the, the body has accumulated enough hits that systems are starting to go offline and multiple systems are starting to go offline or, or getting a little bit imbalanced. And Lyme disease is, is frequently a trigger for these, um, you know, sort of in the background of, of these diagnoses. So not always, but, but frequently. And have you seen a connection between Alzheimer's and or dementia and Lyme? Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, there, and there's some really interesting research coming out of, of uh, some different centers on this as well. But, um, you know, uh, you know, early cognitive decline, cognitive impairment um, leading up then, you know, as it progresses to Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's dementia, um, is possibly triggered by some kind of infection in the background um, in as many as 50% of the cases. And this is a really hot area of research. Um, there's you know, a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who wrote the book, The End of Alzheimer's, he used to be the director of the Buck Institute. Um, you know, we've had some really interesting conversations about this. And um, you know, for his work with reversing cognitive decline, Obviously, the earlier on you, tr you work with a person, the easier it is to do. Um, but he has a model where, you know, unlike the Western medicine approach, which is like, okay, here's your disease, here's your drug. You know, he thinks of like 36 different holes in the roof that you want to plug to get this person better. So it's intensive work, but Lyme disease, co-infections, viral infections, those are all part of his sort of holes in the roof that you want to make sure you know what's going on and treat. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so how do you treat Lyme disease? Yeah, so part of my work is always just trying to figure out who the players are, right? So, and, and the testing is really problematic in that regard, the blood test. So we just do a mix of casting a really wide net. There's a variety of different stages of testing we can go through. And we're just looking again for any signal that we can get and um, and, and, you know, it's really like smoke and mirrors, like traces of things here, traces of things there. Um, a negative test doesn't mean you don't have it. And a positive test doesn't mean you do, doesn't mean you do have it. Right. So you're marrying that information with the symptoms. So we do a lot of symptom tracking, a lot of asking questions and having people fill out forms. And there's certain clusters of symptoms that might be a little more indicative of a Borrelia or a Bartonella or a Babesia infection. So we're doing, putting those two things together. And then from there, um, like my friend and colleague Wayne Anderson says, you know, it, it's basically like we've just been dropped into a jungle and the trees are so thick around us that we can't see basically our hand in front of us and we don't have a map. So then we're trying to build our own map, right? And so we're basically starting to try different interventions, right? So again, patient, in my example, will have um, gone through various stages of the intake process um, and I should note that intake process, we flip that around if we're worried about an acute exposure or an acute case of Lyme disease, because that should really be treated very quickly with antibiotics to avoid the long-term 
Um, but if it's more of a longer term, they tried a bunch of things, we're going down this road, and then we get the testing, we work on all the base inputs and the gut, et cetera. And then we start trying different things. Usually in my realm, I prefer trying herbal and homeopathic remedies first. Um, you know, we do use a lot of antibiotics, um, but you know, I'm always cautious about that because there's um, side effects, there's risks. I have great respect for the microbiota and the gut composition. Um, basically, we start trying different treatments, and then we start getting that input of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And um, we're looking for either somebody starts feeling better. It can be a little elusive, though. It can be like two steps forward, one step back. So, you know, I'll say that, you know, I, I want to see a, a relative graph like this of symptoms over time, but it might look like this, you know. Um, or we're also looking for um, a possible exacerbation reaction or what's called a Herxheimer reaction, which... You know, if you're um, killing the bacteria and they've been hiding out from the immune system for a long time, you might then see the immune system wake up and be like, whoa, what's that? And then you get this sort of inflammatory reaction that can be transient, but that can also be a clue, right? So people, you you might give them an herbal or an antibiotic protocol and they get this flare up, but then, you know, a week or two later start saying, wow, I feel a lot better now. And that's, that's a huge clue, right? So that's like we're building point A, point B, point C, and then connecting the dots. Um, and so from there, you know, we're trying things and we're working at the same time on all these other you know, base inputs that we talked about. Um, and the more we can do and the better the patient can pick those pieces up and, um, and run with it, um, the more traction we get. And how long uh, of a process is this usually? Yeah, so what I tell people is I want to have this sense that we're on the right path, um, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, Otherwise, we switch things around. Um, But that can already be like six months into the process, I would say, on average, right? And from there, you know, once we get that sense, we, we, I would say, easily we get out to the two-year point, three-year point, you know, I would say on average, some people are quicker and they, you know, I think, you know, we, we're sort of done with the, what we feel like we need to do on that setting within a year to a year and a half. But it's a long process and it takes a lot of investment of time and resources and brain power and, you know, so. And most of this is outside of the insurance system, isn't it? It's a mix. Um, we do, it is largely um yeah, as, as I'm sure all of us know, in, in this room, the insurance system is just quite a mess. Um, you know, I did some labs on myself at Quest, and there's one test that I have a high deductible, so I basically pay everything up to a certain point. So I wanted to know from them, what's the cost of this test? Like, Should I just pay for it with cash, or should I put it towards my insurance? And they could not tell me. <laughs> they said, I don't know. Yeah. And that's what I tell patients. Like, you know, we'll... We'll give you a super bill. You can take this bill and submit it to your insurance. But honestly, I don't know what's going to happen. And and even like the insurance brokers don't know what's going to happen. Every insurance is changing, and you know. So, so we we try to work with it within um, how, how we can with insurance. So my the first so some of the functional medicine labs that we'll run are out of pocket. Our visits are out of pocket. Um, but you can depending on the insurance submit for reimbursement. But then all the basic, you know, testing that I'll do, we'll try to run everything through Quest, LabCorp, through Health, all a bunch of labs that are covered by insurance. If the if the patient has that insurance, 
just to see, again, what signal we get and then maybe minimize the amount of testing we have to do through these outside labs. But, and that's a hurdle, right? So it could easily, you know, like easily be the case that within the first six months of working with us, where if you include all the visits and all the labs and supplements and medications, et cetera, you know, we might get into the three, four, five thousand dollar range, right? So on the one hand, that's like, wow, that's a lot of money. On the other hand, you know, that's like one ER visit, maybe two, right? Never mind all the imaging or if they have to get a CT or an MRI or any kind of a procedure, or if they stay in the hospital, now you're into the 20, 30, 40, 50 plus thousand dollar range. You know, so from a medical system perspective, you know, that upfront cost is daunting, but um, I'm just really hopeful that we'll hopefully see that from a functional medicine point of view, if you're getting people better, you're having, you're avoiding having them have to access and go to the, you know, specialty centers and the cost savings is, you know, pays for itself over and, you know, over and over. So you were talking a little bit about some of the the cons of taking long-term antibiotics. Can you talk more about what those might be? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So our, you know, our body, our organism, um, there's, you know, just more and more research and excitement about the fact that we live in balance with other microorganisms and, as our colleague um, Justin Sonnenberg at Stanford said in, a, in a, an article that he published in the New Yorker, he's like, actually, you know, we might be elaborate transport mechanisms for bacteria, <laughs> you know? And so, and these bacteria we live in, uh, hopefully in balance with, and we rely on them and they rely on us for a huge variety of different processes, right? Everything from regulating our metabolic state to controlling inflammation to providing us with different cofactors for making different vitamins, um, for digestion and absorption, for immune surveillance. I mean, really interesting stuff, right? And so I definitely have, you know, it gives me pause to disrupt that balance too much. Um, I will say, however, you know, I've seen many, many people get better from antibiotics. So I have a healthy respect for them. Um, you know, so we'll use them judiciously and, and when we, when we can, um, for shorter, you know, shortest duration possible. But, you know, usually, you know, the way I, I, I use antibiotics would be that we try everything else first. And if we get to a point where we're stuck and, and we agree that we want to embark on an antibiotic course, we usually will use higher doses and longer durations than is generally recommended. And if the person's getting better, we keep going. Right. And if they're not, we reevaluate, switch things around, you know. So it's a it's a complicated dynamic and a complicated situation. Um, our hope is that, you know, there's some new research coming out on this persister concept on how the bacteria can hide out and, and shape shift. There's some new regimens um, which are, have been developed by several colleagues, um, Dr. Yin Zhang and Dr. Kim Lewis. Uh, Dr. Zhang is at um um, John Hopkins and Kim Lewis is at Northeastern. They've developed some really interesting antibiotic combinations using drugs that we wouldn't necessarily have thought to use in this in this application. Um, with, and so then another friend of ours, Richard Horowitz, has been putting some of these into his clinical practice and publishing on it, right? 
So I'm starting to kind of think about, and they're intensive protocols. You know, they're, um, they're not without side effects. Um, they can have significant Herxheimer and die-off reactions. Um, and so I'm kind of wondering if maybe the future of this care couldn't, you know, be try to do everything that we're talking about. And then when we do transition to antibiotics, if we do that, that it's um, kind of, you know, kind of like a chemotherapy regimen where it's very intensive and hopefully shorter duration, but you're just giving that, like trying to give that wallop push. And, you know, right now we don't always, part of the problem that I experience is that we don't always, we don't, we don't know which drug is going to work for which person, for which bug. And it's very individual. We have to just try things and switch them and rotate. And, um, and so if we can make that process smarter and use the research and technology that we have to target that better, um, it's going to be a huge win. So uh, Michael's wondering, what about the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one that comes up all the time. Um, you know, there is some evidence that if you're treating a person for a longer course duration of antibiotics, that they will potentially develop some strains in their body, have gained some antibiotic resistance. Um, but there's also some research showing that when you then stop that treatment, that they'll frequently revert back and, and those bugs won't stick around. Mm -hmm. And antibiotic resistance is a huge problem in our society. And it's one that gives great concern to many, many people. And I think that actually might be at the root cause of, for example, IDSA, Infectious Disease Society, of trying to put a stop to these, these longer-term treatment courses. I think their main motivation is to, to prevent antibiotics not working and prevent overuse. Um, but in clinical practice, you know, treating patients even for a year or two years, um, you know, knock on wood to be superstitious, um, I, I haven't seen a problem with that. And, um, you know, so, yeah, so you, had a, you want to jump in? Well, I was just going to ask you, have you seen patients, blind patients, get well without taking antibiotics I mean, at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. And yeah. so they've just finished their time with you, no antibiotics whatsoever? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What percentage do you think that is? Yeah, I would say maybe like the five to ten percent range. Yeah. All right. So, um, what do surveillance studies show about the incidence of Lyme disease in the Bay Area and nationally? You t you touched on that a little bit, but yeah, it's a very important topic. Uh, you know, it's it's well recognized that Lyme disease exists on the East Coast, and you know, ticks there. Um, you know, the, the prevalence is is really astronomical and growing at a frightening rate. And it can be the case that um, you know, adult tick, um, female tick, these are the the ones that bite other mammals and humans. Um, that on the East Coast, these guys might have up to 60 or 80% carriage rate of the Borrelia bacteria. And then out here in California, uh, and so um, Lyme has been diagnosed in all 50 states in the U.S. Um, and we're having just really interesting emerging research showing um, that the pathogens, Lyme plus the co-infections that can exist, plus viruses, a lot of different bugs that can be in these, these critters, um, that they're showing up in places that we didn't think they were before, and new types are showing up. 
Um, there was a, a research study done by uh, our colleagues and friends, um, Nate Nieto and Dan Salkel. This was funded by the Barrier Lime Foundation. They did a bunch of tick drags out here in California in the Palo Alto, Los Altos Hills area. And they sort of broke this story, this, this news of this new strain of Borrelia, Borrelia Miyamotoi, which we didn't know was in the US, the Japanese strain, mm-hmm. right? So that's another complexity on the puzzle of that's not gonna show up in the same way on the tests that we're using, mm-hmm. right? Um, and could explain. So within California, what does it look like? Um, the ticks that are known to pass Lyme disease to humans and other mammals, um, these are the Ixodes pacificus ticks, have been found in 56 out of 58 of the counties in California. And inside, the the Borrelia Lyme bacteria has been found inside of those ticks in 42 out of 58 of the counties in California. So it's totally in California. Um, Now the rates of, of, you know, what's the incidence of that tick, the numbers of how many ticks are carrying the bug, is lower here in California than it is on the East Coast. So, you know, we'll have a range of anywhere from, you know, zero to three, four percent in some areas um, in Marin, Marin Headland. So the higher risk area, you know, the ridge between Santa Cruz, um, Marin Headlands, Tilden, um, you know, up through Point Reyes, up through Mendocino, that whole coastal ridge is a hot spot. And yeah, especially up into Mendocino. And so, you know, some of the more drier desert areas, you get really low numbers. In Mendocino, you can get up to 40% of the ticks that are carrying. And a couple other interesting facts about California um, and, and nationwide, actually, you know, but especially California, um, the ticks that are most likely to infect us and other mammals are the nymph ticks. And these guys are literally the size of the period at the end of the sentence, right? So like, they're really, really small. And um, so, you know, there's a variety of different prevention tips that we should go through, but you really have to be diligent about tick checking when you're out in in areas and where there's concern. And, you know, you know, I'm to the point in my life where I have to like get my glasses out, put my glasses on, get a magnifying glass, get a flashlight. And so it's a process, right? So this is hard to do when you're camping, when you have kids, you know, but uh, again, you know, if you're in an area that's endemic to Lyme, again, all of California is, but some are other are higher hotspots. You want to just be really careful about doing those tick checks. And, um, you know, what you're looking for a lot of times is like a little dot that you maybe didn't notice before, but now maybe it's also surrounded by a little bit of redness. There might be a little telltale sign that some inflammation going on. You can break out your magnifying glass. You can use your smartphone. There's a magnification app. So that's been really helpful, right? You can get a little picture of it even. Um, you know, so, so yeah, again, the ticks are here, the ticks have the bugs. Um, one interesting fact about why maybe California has less of a carriage rate than the East coast is our friend, the Western fence lizard, who we all see running around. That's like the lizard you see, right? That guy, you know, so these guys have a special complement protein in their blood. And when the ticks feed on the lizard, it actually cleans out the tick, the Borrelia from the tick. So... On the East Coast, the ticks feed, feed, feed at the different life stages, and they keep accumulating pathogens. Whereas here, it's the little guys who have more pathogens frequently, and as they feed more times on these lizards, and they come into adulthood, they have less. You know, so that's one gift that we have out here 
Um, but, um, but yeah, it's still very much here. Have you seen any research on um, people getting infected with Lyme or co-infections from things other than ticks? Yeah, that's a good topic. It's a controversial topic. Um, there's some early research, which, to be honest, is still hasn't really been hashed out. But there's there is so so there's clear support that um, Borrelia um, and some of the co-infections, but not all, can be passed vertically from mom to baby. That's not. Uh, I don't think that's disputed at this point. Um, there is controversial evidence that. Borrelia might be passed um, as a sexually transmitted disease. Um, and this is still kind of anecdotal. The, the data is not as strong as we'd like it to be. Um, but if it were to be shown that this is true, it would in some ways make sense because the Borrelia bacteria is a spirochete bacteria related to syphilis, right? And obviously we know that syphilis is sexually transmitted. Um, you know, but I would say that if this does pan out, that there's differences between the bacteria and that Borrelia is less good at doing this, is less, you know, um, adapted for this factor. Um, there's also concern and some evidence about other biting insects. Um, and I think it is possible that that can occur, but I think it's less common. I think that there is something about the duration of the tick attachment and, you know, because the Borrelia actually goes through this uh, complicated um, gene shifting and, and downregulation of certain genes and upregulation of other genes at the time of that bite. So the tick bites, it gets a little bit of blood. The exposure of the Borrelia bacteria in the hindgut of the tick starts changing the gene expression in the Borrelia. It goes through this sort of morphing process and then boom, go. And now it's cloaked. It's ready to kind of fight, do war with the immune system. Um, you know, there's, so that's also why some doctors would say you need 48 hours to 72 hours of a tick bite for the risk of exposure, which is not true. Um, you know, cause you can definitely get it with a shorter exposure. Um, longer is probably a little bit more risky, um, but it can happen if the tick has fed on another, like partially fed and it still has some of the sparkies close to its salivary glands. Um, and there's some evidence out of, out of Europe recently that even like a 12 hour tick attachment um, transmitted. So, yeah, so if you go to your doctor, you had a tick, you know, you, you really want to keep that tick and you want to send it in for testing. And um, the Bay Area Lyme Foundation had some opportunities for that. That was mostly for research and surveillance. Um, they did a really, again, that awesome sort of citizen science tick surveillance study. Um, but uh, University of Massachusetts has a really great program, uh, tickreport.com. Send your tick. We, when we've gotten bites, we'll overnight it to them. And then usually within one to three business days, you'll get results back. And they'll test, you know, it's it's $50 for the basic, which you get, um, I think, seven or eight different pathogens. And if you want to spend a little bit more, you can get up to 20 different pathogens that they'll report out. And those tests are actually pretty good, right? So they can find really small numbers of these bugs in the tick. So I do, um, you know, when I get that negative back, I feel like, you know, so, it's, you know, it's we're probably in good shape. Michael, do you want to... Uh, backtrack to more prevention techniques that he was talking about or are there okay you said you had more that you wanted to talk about with that yeah great so yeah so first step is awareness right we need to understand that the risk is there that we need to be aware of when we're outside we need to understand the behavior of the ticks where the ticks like to be so ticks 
have this behavior called questing. They'll crawl up to the top of these grasses. They'll turn themselves around and stick out their sticky legs. And they'll just wave them around waiting for anything to pass by, whether it's a deer or a skunk or a human, etc. And then they'll just hitch a ride and start looking for a spot to bite, right? So when you're out walking, um, and you know, it's, it's stressful. I know I'm giving everyone a lot of scary information. Yeah, so I'll take a deep breath. <sighs> um, you know, we love being in nature. We try to go out hiking. You know, it's not always totally relaxing. We frequently have to like yell at our kids, get off the grasses, don't, you know, so it's not, you know, but we still go out in nature. And so what you want to do is just stay towards the center of the path. Understand that, you know, maybe don't brush through the grasses, don't walk through a big field. Um, the ticks also really like to hang out um, in leaf litter, you know, so under the oak trees um, and, you know, where you might go on a hot day and sit down on that log. And that's also where they like to be, you know, so maybe just be aware of where they are. And then, um, you know, using there's some natural repellents. So permethrin is a great one. Um, there's several different, you know, lemon eucalyptus oil actually has some research behind it to, to be a, a good repellent. If you want to use more, if you're out in a more intensive exposure, you can use DEET. Um, you know, but we spray, you know, clothing. And if we're or if our kids are going camping, or if we're going camping, we'll spray permethrin, which is from chrysanthemum. We'll spray that on our sleeping pads and our sleeping bags and shoes and pants, etc. Um, you can get pre-treated clothing with permethrin that will last for like 30 to 40 different wash cycles, right? So there's companies now that are marketing this, this uh, technology. Um, so yeah, repellents, awareness. And then as soon as you get home, um, change your clothes. Um, take your clothes off, put them in the dryer on high for 20 minutes. Um, take a shower and tick check. And, you know, so those measures, um, I think, are really good and really um, helpful. Um, but, and again, if you get a bite, um, you know, understand what you need to do for proper tick removal. Um, you basically want to get a really fine tipped, this specially designed tweezers. I can send a link if anyone wants that for the website. Um, but if you imagine the ticks biting you like this with its little proboscis in you, you want to come perpendicular to that, pinch it off and pull straight up. You don't want to pinch the body, twist the body, burn the body, put Vaseline on it, whatever else it is. Cause that would just upset it and it'll regurgitate more stuff into you. So you want to pinch off, pull it up and, and then save it, put it in a plastic bag with a moist paper towel and, um, you know, at least get a picture of it to somebody who knows they can identify what kind of tick it is. Cause that matters. So tick type matters, what stage of life matters, right. For risk, where you were, when you got exposed, all this data. Um, some colleagues of mine, um, have come out with an app called tick tracker which is really cool. Um, and so you can take a picture of the tick and it will um, map that to your location. And so they're building this database of, of where the ticks are, what kinds they are, what, you know, who it bit, um, et cetera. And then um, also trying to map the infections that it has. Um, these guys, um, Holiday, Goodrow, and, and Jeff, they're doing, they also have a, a game that they're developing for, for educating kids. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, like a gamified version of uh, just building awareness on what type of ticks there are. And, and, and so I think awareness is, is a really key problem, really key uh, a solution to the problem. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Sunja Swig and host Michael Lerner. With the expansion uh, to so many counties in Sonoma and all around on the West Coast, we're wondering 
about the connection with climate change. Do you think climate change is affecting how ticks are being infected and expanding into different areas? Yeah, it definitely is. And that's not controversial. Uh, the EPA came out in 2014, I think it was, was, and said that the growing epidemic of Lyme disease is a key indicator of climate change. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing a variety of factors involved there. Um, you know, the East Coast winters have been less cold and they haven't gotten that solid freeze that tends to take the tick populations down. Um, there used to be more of a seasonality on the East Coast and we're seeing that shrink and it's becoming more like California where the tick season is year round, right? Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, as um, we're seeing the, 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 the cases and the ticks carrying these bugs move farther and farther north. Um, as, again, the temperatures change. So it's definitely, yeah, there is a connection there. Uh, can, can you have Lyme disease without symptoms? So that's a good question. It's a complicated one. Um, you know, I think that it's, you know, I think it's really easy to get exposed to Lyme disease. And so then the question is, if you test somebody and they show some evidence of positive bands or you know, antibody activation in their bloodstream, um, you know, how many positives are you gonna get? Or how many trace of, of you know, exposures? If you pull somebody off the street who had zero symptoms, you might get some signal there. You might get some hits that says, looks like you have been exposed. I use the word have been exposed. I don't say you do have it or you don't have it because it's so murky. Um, but I think it is possible to have, it, have had exposure even multiple times and not be sick. And that's actually a really interesting area of research. Um, you know, so other, other colleagues who are moving into the, the Lyme field, like George Church out of Stanford, that's one of his big questions. Harvard. Sorry, Harvard, thank you. Yeah, um, so that's one of his big questions. Um, you know, what is it that separates that person who has been exposed but never got sick from the person who has been exposed and is very sick, right? And, and it's almost in some ways very, you know, it's very interesting to look at that sort of, you know, either the person who was exposed and never got sick or the person who was treated and responded really well, really quickly and never relapsed, the super responders. Mm -hmm. What makes them different from the people who don't, right? And so we're trying to learn from that and use a bunch of different uh, new technology, testing technology to, to answer that question. And is there any answer yet? Any result that you could report? Nothing definitive that's going to change practice yet, but there is some really interesting sort of signal coming up with, you know, you know another colleague, John Alcott out of, out of um, Johns Hopkins has done some work um, looking at, you know, so he has this um, slice study and he's worked with the Bay Area Lyme Foundation also and basically set up a biorepository. Uh, so he has pa patients come in who have Lyme disease. And again, that's a controversial diagnosis. So he gets around that by only accepting people who have erythema migrans, which is the bullseye rash, not everybody gets the rash. But if you do get the rash, you have Lyme disease. There's no question. And you don't need the testing to prove it, right? So the, the, that's called pathognomonic. The erythema migrans rash is pathognomonic, meaning if you have the rash, you have Lyme. So he only takes people who have that rash. And it's been documented by multiple clinicians. He has missed them to the study. They test them at the baseline, they start some treatments, and they keep testing them sequentially. So it's showing this divergence then of some early inflammatory markers, which are showing up in those people who continue to be sick long-term. 
right, versus those who get better. And so that could be potential. There's some potential there for an early diagnostic um, and, and possibly new treatments eventually. Um, and those numbers are also really interesting. Like, what does that look like? You know, we think that there's at the minimum over 300,000 new cases per year of Lyme disease in, the, in our country. And that's probably a very conservative number. And then Dr. Akat out of Johns Hopkins has shown that um, somewhere, you know, his studies and some other studies have shown that somewhere between 10 or 15% up to maybe 20 or 25% of people, even if they're treated at the front, you know, when they get it, still go on to have chronic symptoms, persistent symptoms, increased disability, um, you know, fatigue, pain, neurological, cognitive impairment, et cetera. And so again, those numbers, that's, we're talking about some pretty big numbers, right? We're, oh, that's, you know, that, you know, 15% of 20% of 30,000 is, you know, 45 to 60,000 people per year uh, minimum, you know, conservative estimates who something happened to them where they, you know, that bug's either still there or their immune system shifted, the inflammation shifted, and and they're, they're not what, you know, not in the same places they used to be. So that's a really important area of research. So Michael's saying that he consults most frequently with functional medicine physicians. He's attended two of the IFM national conferences as well as the IFM detox module. Not sure what that is, but maybe you'll tell us. Sure. Oh, the detox module. I, he says he's in general, general, he's impressed by the quality of IFM textbooks, trainings, and related materials. And he's impressed by the quality of the physicians, naturopaths, and others who train in IFM. Uh, there are Bay Area peer functional medicine discussion groups and like. What is your impression of the dynamics of functional medicine moving forward? Is it continuing to grow? Yeah, functional medicine is on a really exciting trajectory right now. <clears throat> and um, I definitely feel very blessed and lucky to be in the Bay Area where we have a lot of wonderful colleagues. Um, my friend and colleague, Kat Toops, uh, who organizes the Bay Area Functional Medicine um, Discussion Group. And um, we meet fairly regularly and kind of just compare cases. And um, Cynthia Lee is a good friend. Anne Hathaway, um, you know, uh, there's probably like between 15 and 25 people in this core group. And there's a much larger satellite group um, we all network with. And um, there's a lot of opportunities out there for training. So there's the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is wonderful. Um, it can be a little overwhelming. You know, they, they, they talk about, um, you know, going to one of their conferences, which you've been to, the detox module and their annual conference. It's like trying to take a sip from a fire hose. Like you're just getting blasted with information. And, you know, by the end of the first day, you're just kind of like, wow, it's a lot, you know, especially if you're new to it. Um, but, you know, really good education. Um, my partner, Chris Kresser, has a really interesting functional medicine training program, both for practitioners, doctors, clinicians, but also for health coaches. And that's a, a large part of how we see the model shifting to provide better care. Um, so training is, is growing. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot more. It's still not super well recognized word or name, functional medicine. What does that mean? Um, I spoke at the Precision Medicine World Conference in Santa Clara um, two days ago. And in the start of my talk, I said, how many people have heard of functional medicine? And I have probably 100 people in that room, probably two people raise their hands, mm -hmm. right? So it's not well recognized, but I think that's shifting. And it's, you know, for those who do know what it is, it's um, very well regarded and very exciting. And there's also some institutional shifting happening. Um, 
um, our friends Mark Hyman and Patrick Hannaway, leaders in the movement, um, were asked by the Cleveland Clinic to start a functional medicine center there. And that happened a few years back um, with, you know, um, $50 million of funding at the start gate. And, um, you know, it's been going gangbusters ever since. Their, their wait lists are huge. They can't hire fast enough. And they're also doing some really great research, right? So within the clinical setting, and they're now sort of, you know, opening up the door a little bit to the other specialists at the Cleveland Clinic who are saying, wow, I'm seeing some improvements and outcomes that we weren't seeing before. And what is this thing you're doing? And so as that starts to grow and as the research starts to build, um, you know, I think that um, it's gonna, it is the way of the future and it's, it's um, the best way for managing chronic disease. So some of the more conservative integrative medicine physicians have two principal critiques of functional medicine. The first is that functional medicine uses diagnostic techniques that are not well established. And the second is that all of the diagnostic techniques and the many supplements prescribed create significant costs for the patients. Is there any merit to these concerns? Yeah, I think those are important critiques and and they're things which we definitely take to heart. And, um, you know, we, in our practice, we use a very wide variety of different diagnostic um, testing, right? So we do prefer, if possible, to kind of adhere to a test-don't-guess philosophy. Um, we use a lot of mainstream labs, you know, that are accepted by, you know, the system. And then we use a lot of lab studies which are less understood and less accepted, you know, um, you know, Again, this test looking at the microbiota at stool, gut function, test looking at heavy metal levels, test looking at salivary adrenal gland um, function, um, test looking at different inflammatory markers, um, test looking at organic acids. There's a long list. And it's true with any test that, um, that you know, it's not a perfect technology. You know, the... the um, you know, it, 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 how a test is built is very dependent on what samples they use as the controls. It's very dependent on how they kind of tweak that, those v- normal values, what's normal, what's not over time based on the results they find. It's, you know, they, they might say, you know, this test has been validated on 100 healthy controls, but what does healthy mean? And what do they actually do to ascertain? Did they have any? So it's complicated. I would say that what we always tell people is that we like the testing. It does help, um, but that what's on the paper is not the be-all and end-all. It's not the final answer. And the most important thing is what's happening to you and what happens as we try different things over time, right? Um, you know, but I still find the test very helpful. I think as we get farther along, we do, you know, the practitioner in general does tend to order less and less testing. Um, but to the, you know, the point we talked about earlier in, in this conversation um, even if we're asking someone to invest a, a, a few thousand dollars up front, um, if we get information that moves the needle and gets them better, um, it's totally worth it, right, in the long run. And so I think that that's, um, I would flip that critique around a little bit. Um, you know, and the supplements, yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of cost. And, um, you know, I think that, it's also really, uh, you know, one thing I struggle with on a daily basis is, 
you know, does the person need to be taking all these supplements? And for how long do they need to be taking all these supplements? And it's hard because the, both the doctor and the patient, we get very attached to um, the theoretical reason that you're taking that supplement. Like, well, no, I'm not going to stop my CoQ10 because it helps my mitochondria. You know, right? So you want those things. And you, you, know, you so, so, you know, I'm very open all the time to, um, you know, if we're not sure if the treatment's helping or if the supplement's helping, let's be creative about it. Let's either totally stop it and see what happens, or let's go to taking it every other day, right? And see if you notice a difference. Um, and maybe we can cut, you know, the load down that way. Um, plus there's also just, you know, people get to be taking 15, 20, 25, 30 different things. They might be swallowing 40 pills three times a day. Mm -hmm. And then you're running into just a bunch of like, can their body even absorb all that stuff? So we do, we use less supplements. We try to target them into protocols so that we do, okay, this is what we're gonna do for two months and then we're gonna stop and we're gonna retest, right? So if we're treating a, a gut imbalance um, and, and with the antimicrobial herbs, et cetera, that I might use for Lyme or co-infections, you know, we'll, we're, it's a constant discussion of, you know, can we stay on it? Should we come off of it? Should we pulse it? Should we rotate? Mm -hmm. um, but they really, you know, not all, but they really do help. And, you know, a lot of times it just takes this experimentation and rotation to figure out what's the magic cocktail of everything that gets someone better. So, Michael asks, what do you think of the use of intuition in medical practice? Oh, that's, that's great. You picked up, you, you intuited that I was thinking about that. <laughs> so um, with our friend and colleague, Cynthia Lee, um, I did a, a medical intuition uh, workshop and started integrating that into my practice to a certain degree. And I don't always tell the patients this, but sometimes I'll look at their list of, you know, you know, 20 supplements and try to use some intuition as to what they need to still be taking. And so there's different ways of doing that, right? Um, I have this sort of my own way of where I, you know, they won't know that I'm doing it, but I can sort of access that and I'll sort of run my finger down the list and, and kind of sense, see what I sense, right? So I'll maybe parse it into have and say, you know, do they need, quickly just ask myself inside my head, do they need to be taking all of these and ask for a yes or a no? And do they need to be taking all of these and ask for a yes or a no? And then run it by the patient and say, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, my intuition, I would say, I'll say, my intuition is that maybe you don't need to be taking, you know, this supplement or that supplement. Would you, you know, should we try stopping that for a while? Um, you know, it's not, and it's always a mix, right, as intuition is. It's not just this kind of shamanic hokey, like leaning, like, you know, asking the ethers for information. It's also, you know, those supplements are ones which I'm already not sure about, right? So let's think about, and is another way to access some wisdom about that and then have it be part of the discussion. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I will do that. What do you think of kinesiology? Also, yeah, interesting. I, I, it's not something I practice personally. And so I do find myself on the fence with it sometimes. You know, I have people who swear by kinesiology, muscle testing, um, or various other ways of accessing information. Um, Dietrich Klinghart uses ART, autonomic response testing. Some people... Um, Stephen Finkbein, who um, is in, in Fairfax, uh, a colleague of mine who um, I really respect, he'll you know, keep his fingers on your acupuncture pulses and then hold different supplements up to you and sort of test um, pulse response to that. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. It's not something I do in my practice. And so there, there, I do have sometimes some skepticism, you know, and, and, and I took my son to see a doctor who's doing allergy testing for the um, with kinesiology and, and my son was like, after the visit, he's like, that was so weird. And he was like, 
he pushed a lot. He didn't push as hard the second time, you know, because for the arm to go down, you know. But again, it's a way. Sometimes I think it's if the if the practitioner is really good and they and they're getting good results, I think it's just a way for them to access their intuition. I would love it if it was proven to be true, quote unquote, and you know, because that would be amazing. Like I'm always wishing for ways to like understand you know, where's, what's the right direction and what of this toolkit of 500 things should we try, right? So, yeah. yeah. So how would you describe your own spiritual orientation? Yeah, I, uh, you know, my upbringing, um, my parents were both had a background in Judaism, um, but you know, came out here from the East Coast following Swami Satchidananda, who was also one of your teachers. My middle name was given to me by Swami Satchidananda, as was many of our um, my siblings and my parents' names. So we were infused with meditation and yoga and um, gratitude and sort of just, you know, trying to give good intention back to the universe. And that, I, that definitely resonates with me. And... Um, I do, you know, I do have a meditation practice. I've also really been um, moving into some of the emotional healing, brain retraining techniques like EFT, emotional freedom technique, um, and and seeing some really good benefits. So I think just accessing that inner place of peace and calm and finding, you know, Swami Satchidananda was a teacher from India who came to the U.S. and his philosophy was uh, the truth is one, the paths are many. And so that, that's a big belief of mine. Like, it doesn't really matter to me how you get there, but, um, you know, it, there's huge benefit to working on um, accessing that wisdom inside of yourself and, and facilitating that with others as well. Leah, can you talk a little bit about um, your work and your experience with some of the things we've been talking about? Uh, well... I uh, I say you don't get into Lyme until you've gotten Lyme, um, just because it is something that you don't usually hear about in the mainstream media. People don't usually talk about the medical system, doesn't usually engage heavily on the topic. Um, so the reason that Sanja, as he mentioned, that he got into Lyme um, was because I got Lyme um, twice, and um, it... Uh, when I was in grad school, it, it was cardiac manifestations. So um, it was in my heart and I had sudden onset heart problems as a very athletic and healthy 28 year old who I think had really um, never been to the doctor with anything, but you know, oh yeah. Um, I had been very healthy and had never been to the doctor for anything but you know healthy checkups. Um, so all of a sudden to have these cardiac problems was very strange and um, so 10 years of cardiac problems and then another bite here in California. And then I manifested more obvious Lyme symptoms, um, you know, migrating joint pain and a stiff neck and um, night sweats and um, neurological issues. And um, so, so with the discovery that it could be Lyme, which I denied at first when the doctor came over and said, I think you could have this thing called late stage Lyme and acute Lyme. And, and I just, I, I've never been bit by a tick since I was six. I, 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 it couldn't be Lyme. Um, but I didn't know at that point that ticks were so small that you usually don't see them and they can be on your scalp or, you know, at the back of your leg. Um, so anyway, it, 
it thrust us into this whole um, exploration and really testing um, Sanjay's knowledge of integrative medicine and my background. I had been working um, um, in complementary alternative medicine, not as a physician, but more as an academic. Um, so uh, we got to really practice what we've been, you know, preaching, and um, it really served uh, served me well. Um, and and the two of us have tried every um, form of integrative and alternative and conventional medicine, I think that you possibly could and spent many, many, many thousands of dollars and um, learning um, through trial and error and, and learning that everyone's an individual because everyone um, who I've met now that I work for the Bay Area Lyme Foundation, which is a, a, a Lyme scientific research organization out of Silicon Valley. Um, everyone that I've met through there has had um, similar experience with a tick-borne disease. Um, sort of you see similar symptoms um, between people, but no one's story is exactly the same and no one's um, therapy that got them well has been exactly the same. Everyone really is an N of one. Um, and so it's frustrating for, for the medical system. It's frustrating for patients because no one can have, you know, the perfect answer for someone else. So um, I, could, I could go on about my healing journey and how it happened for me, but um, I'm just really glad that I am now with an organization that is um, doing the most, um, <clears throat> the most research into Lyme disease diagnostics and therapeutics um, in the USA. Um, and the government uh, is now starting to listen. So this, um, the, uh, there's a new HHS tick-borne disease working group. You can look online. There's a hundred page document, um, talking about some of the stuff that Sanjay was talking about, the new findings, um, in research around this disease. And, um, I served on a department of defense, um, tick-borne disease, um, panel where the, because Congress had mandated $5 million towards tick-borne disease. So the, the, the research dollars um, from the government are still very small. And so we do rely on foundations um, like the Bay Area Lyme Disease Foundation to do this research. But um, things are shifting. In the last couple of years, things are really shifting towards opening up the um, the you know the knowledge that Lyme disease is an epidemic in the U.S. and you know it's big in China, it's big in South America, it's big in Europe, it's big in Switzerland, it's in Africa. You know, so um, this is this has um, been very exciting for us to watch the progression. Um, and uh, I thank you guys for bringing awareness to this and um, and to functional medicine, which is I think a great modality that hits at this really complex um, disease. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Sunja Swig and host Michael Lerner. Are there other questions? Oh. In your observation, uh, have you found that Lyme and all its cohorts can affect literally every system in your body, every organ, et cetera, every function? Yeah. <clears throat> Are there any exceptions that you know of? <laughs> huh. You know, like how we talked about before with the Lyme disease spirochete being similar to the syphilis spirochete, they're related. Um, you know, syphilis, it was, it was said about syphilis that, you know, uh, Sir William Osler, one of the, you know, foundational historians in medicine said that to know syphilis is to know all of medicine. 
right? Because it can affect any different body system. And if you, you know, there were, there were you know, multiple volume sets of books that were written about syphilis, um, again, listing off the manifestations across every different body system. And Lyme disease is, and so syphilis was known as the great masquerader. And Lyme disease is the same way, same thing, um, except that um, it's much more elegant and complex of a bacteria. Um, it's, you know, uh, an order of magnitude, you know, more complex than syphilis. So, yeah, it, it's definitely the, the great mimicker, the great masquerader. Um, and, you know, that's a lot of why <clears throat> there's a mismatch between our medical system and this bug, because we've gotten so time crunched to the point where the doctor might have, you know, seven to 12 minutes to spend with you. And if someone's coming in with this, you know, huge list of problems that don't, you know, adhere to any single diagnosis that we learned in med school, you know, there's a lot that happens there. And it's, it's hard for the doctor. It's frustrating. It's stressful. You know, they, they have to try to get in and out. And they're like, oh, you have too much going on. What's the one thing that I'm going to deal with today, right? Um, so it's just, there's just a big mismatch there. And um, yeah. Can I follow up slightly with, I have a hypothesis that um, the spirochetes go for areas in you that are weaker or uh, uh, not functioning as well. It's just a hypothesis. I have Lyme plus three co-infections. Yeah, I would agree with that. And yeah, no, I agree with that. And, um, you know, but it makes sense because, you know, these bugs are going to go for areas that have been previously disrupted, right? So they're going to, you know, you know it's, it's a terrain problem, which is, again, I think what separates that someone gets exposed gets super sick versus someone gets exposed and doesn't get sick at all. You know, it's a terrain problem. It's, you know, there's a seed which could grow into a tree, but if it doesn't get planted in the right soil, it's either not going to, you know, it won't grow versus like totally taking hold and rooting and shooting up. So, you know, and that's also where the lifestyle piece comes in because if you can manage that underlying terrain, you can take care of a lot of the predispositions that happen. Um, but no, we've definitely seen that, that areas of old injury, you know, areas where there was, you know, a broke something that broke or, you know, somebody might've had some head injuries in the past and they were fine, but now they're getting brain issues. But then you map that on top of the fact that there are many, many different strains of this bacteria. There's probably 60 strains in the U.S. and over 300 worldwide. And each strain has a different predilection. So it's just really complicated. I have a question about triggers that uh, cause the symptoms to return. And one is vaccinations. What is your feeling about flu vaccinations, pneumonia, all the ones they want to give seniors? Do you advise? And the other is, do you see a connection between a physical trauma, a fall or an accident, and then a recurrence of the symptoms? Yeah, so um, physical trauma, I'll answer that first because it's a little easier. And I think it's also similar to the previous question, which is that, um, you know, sometimes we'll see that where someone will, you know, it goes both ways. Like they were doing fine and then they get, you know, symptomatic with Lyme. And maybe there was something that preceded that, some a, a stressful car accident, a divorce, a job change, uh, surgery, 
you know, fall, et cetera. It's like, yep, you know, you know, they were kind of coping. Their body was doing this. I mean, our bodies are incredible about what they can deal with and manage to keep going, right? But it might have been that you were kind of close to that edge of teetering, and then that event was enough to tip you over, and now you're more symptomatic. Um, so that we do see. The vaccine question is a really good one, and um, it's something that, you know, I, I do think there's something there. But it's not in everybody, right? So if somebody comes to me and they say, you know, let's give the example of someone who has Lyme and is, is let's just give the example of they got better and they're doing pretty well. And they're like, okay, should I get this vaccine or not? Because I want to maintain my health, but I also don't want to, you know, get sicker, et cetera. So I'll always ask them, well, like, have you had vaccines in the last number of years? And if yes, how'd you do? Right. And if they did fine, then they're probably okay. And if they did poorly, then I would be really cautious. And if it's a vaccine that they have to get for some reason, you know, we'll do our best to shore them up. You know, give them some really good doses of vitamin C, give them some glutathione, give them some antioxidants, et cetera, make sure their immune system's working really well, they're not sick with anything else, their stress level, all this stuff, right, that we're talking about. Um, the vaccine question is, is an important one, and I definitely do have concerns about vaccines. I think that's one piece that's sort of contributing to the tendency of our population right now. So it's one of the evolutionary mismatch pieces that we're pushing the immune system a little bit too hard in some directions, but also eradicating things that were good training wheels for our immune system, right? That taught our immune system how to function and, and therefore avoided us from going down the autoimmune pathway where our immune system gets really revved up too fast for something. Um, you know, so I, I do have some general, but there's also a lot of, there's been some major wins with vaccines. So it's not a, it's not a one size fits all answer. Um, and it matters a lot about what the previous history was, what the current status of health is. Um, and there is, you know, I think a subset of people who have some either genetic predispositions or environmental stressors and predispositions where those are the people who are going to get potentially tipped over by that extra immune stress. So. Um, you were talking about Sir William Osler, which had me thinking of Hillary, John, uh, Hillary Johnson's book, Osler's Web, about CFIDs and the history of, and her main point being in using him in the title back in the day, a clinician needed to be able to identify syphilis, anything from a lesion to dementia. And once the spirit key was identified, then that's all you had to test for. And a lot of the book was about the need for clinicians who can hear what's actually happening with the person sitting in front of them. I'm hoping you could um, cross-reference multiple chemical sensitivities and do, you, you've talked some about fibromyalgia and CFIDs and, and uh, in my experience, there's been sort of these Venn diagrams mm -hmm. yeah. and how, how does uh, MCS fit in with what you've seen with Lyme, please? Yeah, it's a great question. So MCS or multiple chemical sensitivity, someone who is very reactive and sensitive to different environmental triggers, right? Can be perfumes, can be smoke, can be going to the grocery store and can't tolerate the detergent aisle or you know other odors around them. Um, you know, can be non-existent in some, moderate, mild to moderate in some, and extremely severe in some. And there's a, the, I think the idea of a Venn diagram is a good one because there's a lot of things that can trigger that. And so um, and I think it's really also an indication that 
there's been enough load on the person's body or organism that now multiple body systems are, are, are struggling. And the big area that we see um, with multiple chemical sensitivity is the cell membranes themselves, cell membranes, and also mitochondria. And you know, mitochondria are the batteries inside of our cells that where our ATP, our, our energy molecules are made. And so these are like these little elegant um, organelles that are all about cell membranes. If you, you take this little, tiny little mitochondria and you open it up, it's just this crazy, like overlapping system of cell mem- of membranes where this process of ATP creation happens. So if your cell membranes have gotten damaged and, um, and there's a problem, you know, th- those are electrical, it's all electrical. We work along, you know, the movement of ions of sodium and, and chloride and potassium across those cell membranes. And that's what generates the movement in and out through pumps and channels is what creates ATP. And so if you're now in this situation where that extra toxin or stressor is enough to like uh. crash you, you know, it's frequently a cell membrane problem and a mitochondrial problem. It doesn't say why, like we're still wondering why, but absolutely chronic persistent infections, um, viruses, Lyme disease, toxins, heavy metals, you know, the list goes on. Um, but there's some colleagues also doing cell membrane repair um, using fatty acids, phosphatidylcholine, um, butyrate, et cetera. Um, and there's oral regimens, there's also IV regimens, and you know, those can be helpful. Um, first of all, thank you for your work and thank you for coming. You know, in my readings, I often have read that people get tested and are told that they don't have Lyme disease, but the symptoms continue and then down the line they find another testing situation. And in fact, they do have Lyme disease. So I guess I have two questions. One, is it possible to get tested told you don't have it when you have it? And two, can you recommend Bay Area labs that you know are really uh, good for testing? Yeah, so the question was about testing. Um, that it's possible to have Lyme be tested and have the test show negative, um, and then down the road maybe get tested again and have it show positive. We're in a mess with the tests right now, and we're using antiquated technology from 50-plus years ago, and there's just so many reasons it would take us another hour to go through why the tests are really poor. Um, the technology is antiquated. We're using, you know, the tests. If you go to Quest or LabCorp or any other lab here, um, they're going to test you for Lyme using the Connecticut strain. Uh-huh. But it gets worse. <laughs> they're going to use the Connecticut strain that was raised in the lab and never saw a mammal. And so, again, as soon as that bug sees a mammal's blood, it changes all of its surface proteins. Right? And then there's the issue that when the bug gets in us, it again keeps switching those proteins. If it comes under attack from the immune system, it'll recognize that, pull that molecule in and put out a different one. Mm-hmm. Right? So the tests shift a lot. And then you add on top of that that um, the CDC and the IDSA has come up with a certain criteria. And they have this concept of a two-tier test where they use a first test, which might have a more higher chance of false positives. So you sort of check that one. And if that one's positive, then they run it to the second tier, which is the Western blot test. And the Western blot test is now looking for certain bands. Um, you know, in early Lyme disease, that, that test, that first test, 
is depending on the studies. Um, ELISA. ELISA or the IFA, yeah, immunofluorescence antibody, um, is about as good as flipping a coin, <laughs> right? So you maybe have a 50-50 chance of having that turn up positive. If you have an early exposure, your chances are less because it's an antibody and your body's machinery takes about three to six weeks to gear up and make those antibodies, right? And then you have all the problems around different strains, different bacterias, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, so what we look at is I, I basically will, and so sometimes you'll, you know, you'll see different results from different labs too. So if I'm really concerned, my sort of start gate test, if the person has insurance and they're not paying cash for it, I will test them at two different labs at the same time. And, and what we're looking for is any signal, right? If there's any evidence, in my opinion, that there's an exposure, I'm not going to say, oh, there it is. You have Lyme disease because I don't think the test can do that. But I'll say it looks like your immune system has seen this bug before. We know that this bug is very smart, very good at persisting. And so then it's possible that this is in part or in whole a driver of your symptoms. And so we continue down that pathway while all at the same time not trying to forget about everything else, right? Because... You know, I always struggle, you know, Lyme disease is the great masquerader. It can cause anything, but there's a lot of other things going on in, in health and disease, right? So we're constantly trying to take off the Lyme goggles and make sure that we're keeping everything else in mind. Um, but it also really does matter what the response to treatment is. So persistence in testing, repeated testing possibly. And then really you need to get, there's no single lab that's amazing. Um, you know, some are more helpful than others, but you just need to work with a clinician who knows how to work their way through that information. Okay, I, over four years, I've had three negatives, positive, a negative, a positive, and a maybe test. And um, I've had many treatments through that time. But um, my question was that um, our family was exposed in Rhode Island to many ticks. Uh, my daughter, my granddaughter, who was five or six at the time, had the bullet. And um, my son, who's a doctor, had all, all the kids given antibiotics. And then I was also given antibiotics, but I had negative tests. And the doctor said to stop, which is a mistake. But can my granddaughter, can it resurface? Did the antibiotics kill it? Did it put it in remission? I'm really curious about what's her future look like. Uh, my question is, um, have you heard of the use of frequency generators on like Rife machines in the treatment of, uh, of Lyme's disease? And, uh, my, my question goes back to um, treatments for the, the um, increasing and repairing the um, ADP, the energy of the cells, and that, that's the situation I'm in with, you know, multiple... <laughs> Multiple things with, from the chronic fatigue and then uh, Lyme um, yeah. and its cousins and, and the cancer. Okay. Could you say a little more about <clears throat> cardiologists in the area? Are they coming up to speed? Supposedly 10% of people with Lyme have cardiology issues. And I'm wearing bugby wear clothes in case people would like to see them. Mm. <laughs> my pants and my shirt. So, Very fashionable. And, and I don't know what you think of being exposed to the pyrethrins. I wear something under it. Mm -hmm. Do you? Do, are you okay with that touching our skin? Great. So, um, question on the testing first, and the kids being exposed, and your granddaughter with. Um, 
you know, bullseye rash, which again is pathognomonic for Lyme disease. So she was definitely exposed. <clears throat> and then she was treated. And how old is she? Well, she was six at the time. She's 11 now. And she's okay? She had symptoms? She's, she's been fine. Right. So the majority of people will be fine, right? Again, it's that subset, um, either, you know, even sometimes with treatment. But some people, again, just do fine without treatment. Um, very encouraging that she's fine and that it's been five years, right? That's a very good sign. However, um, the interesting thing that, about the Borrelia bacteria, and this is part of why it's, you know, it's not behaving the way we've taught ourselves in microbiology. Like you get strep throat, you get really sick really fast, your throat hurts a lot, you get a fever, you're super achy, you take your antibiotics and within a day or two you're better, right? Quick on, quick off, right? Because the bacteria is dividing very quickly and so then you get, you get a quick symptom on, but then you get also get a quick response to the antibiotics because the antibiotics really work the best, if at all, when the bug is dividing. So Lyme is very, very slow. It's very smart, very slow, has figured its way out. And so the antibiotics take a lot longer to work and are less dramatic, right? So the other thing that can happen is it can resurface. Now, Given her story, I would be actually a little bit less worried about that happening than I would be about that she just lives in a very endemic area and that her chances of getting re-exposed are really high. And we do find, again, because the bacteria are slowly dividing, sometimes it takes multiple exposures, four or five exposures between, boom, now you're symptomatic. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't, you know, lose sleep over it, and I certainly wouldn't treat her. I would, you know, I would invest maybe some herbal protocols if you want to kind of work, if they want to work on that. Um, I would just keep a close eye on her. And she has moved to Maryland. So Maryland has a ton of Lyme. <laughs> so the whole East, I mean, it's everywhere, but East Coast is, is, is hot. Um, so yeah, just, you know, basically just know in your head, know in the back of your, your kids, their parents, in their heads, have everybody be aware of the problem. And, you know, if things aren't behaving the way they should be, if the kids are more tired, more achy, if they're getting pain that's moving around, if they're getting any weird skin stuff that's moving around, those two pieces, joint pain that migrates, and especially paresthesia, as they're called, or numbness and tingling that migrates are key symptoms for Lyme disease. Um, but yeah, fatigue, brain not working as well, used to be doing great in school, now having trouble, any weird mood changes, you know, depression, anxiety stuff coming up that's not, you know, so... Just, you know, have your, have your instinct, your radar up and know that it's an issue. Um, uh, rife machines and frequency generators. Um, this is a, it's an important area. A lot of people are using these technologies to treat themselves. And this is, um, you know, there's a um, Royal Rife was a gentleman doctor who invented this technology. And, um, you know, it's an uh, amplifier treatment frequency generator. And you dial a knob and you pick certain numbers and... Um, ostensibly, these are, you know, kill different kinds of bacteria in the body and you expose yourself to this coil that exposes you to these frequencies. And um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not FDA approved. It, to, the, to the opposite, it's actually, you know, would be risky for me to tell people to try it. Um, you know, but that said, um, you know, everyone is treating themselves a lot of times and trying different things. And I can say for sure that I've seen people who've gotten better from it. Not everyone, you know, so it's, it's, it's an experiment. Um, but, you know, because Lyme and these co-infections are so complicated, 
um, people end up trying a lot of different things. It's it's like the when you get a cold, like you have, you know, you might you know, go to the pharmacy and to the cold and flu aisle, and there's like 500 different options of what you could buy. And why is that? Because none of them work very well, right? <laughs> if one of them worked, then all the rest would be gone, right? So it's the same thing with Lyme disease. You know, people are trying all sorts of different things. They're on chat groups. They're comparing notes, and um, you know, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an option out there. Um, ATP repair. We talked about you know cell membrane support, phosphatidyl, choline. Um, you know, there's a variety of different nutrients. Um, you know, we try to do a lot through diet and through gut healing. So making sure your gut is super healthy, um, bone broth, you know, if you're not a vegetarian can be, okay. So um, you can still, you know, use glutamine, uh, other nutrients, uh, marshmallow, slippery elm, things are gonna heal that mucosal barrier in the gut, making sure that you're, um, you can try out a, a, a whole foods diet reset challenge and take out a lot of things and then put things back in one at a time to make sure there aren't things that are triggering you. Um, and and then also there's some really really cool work being done <clears throat> with um, what's called autophagy and mitophagy. So these are um, you know ways of of improving our cellular function and, and helping our body to do to clean house basically. Um, and so ways that you can activate autophagy and mitophagy through diet is actually not as much about what you're eating but when and how you're eating. And the two big concepts there are intermittent fasting, which is also called time-restricted feeding window, where you might delay breakfast until 10 or 11 in the morning and then try to have your last food of the day by 7 p.m. Um, and so you're eating all of your intake. And it doesn't matter how much you eat during that time. You know, you can adhere to whatever diet you want, as long as it's hopefully pretty healthy. Um, you restrict all of your food intake to about an eight-hour window, and then you go... You know, as soon as you, if you can go 12 hours up to 16 hours, when you pass the 12 hour mark, you start activating that mitophagy and autophagy. Does coffee count? Coffee's okay. No, coffee's okay. And then the other one is um, on that is what's called fasting mimicking diet, where you do uh, a five day run three months in a row and then quarterly, where you eat a very restricted calorie intake and into that more of a ketogenic phase. And you can really boost your cell metabolism and, and detox that way. Cardiologists in the area, um, yeah, we do see a lot of folks with um, with cardiovascular symptoms, heart palpitations, heart racing, um, shortness of breath, all sorts of stuff. And I've been pretty disappointed. Um, you know, um, a, a patient of mine um, recently got into a really difficult situation from a cardiology point of view, and um, we did get some good support at UCSF for what they were doing. You know, their doctors were, were open-minded, but, you know, disavowed any knowledge of Lyme, but were willing to not totally write it off. And then we actually kind of uncovered a, she uncovered a, an ICU doctor at, at Alta Bates who totally knew about Lyme disease and said, yep, this could be Lyme and I want to test you and do all these studies and everything else. So that was kind of, of, of an interesting thing. Um, there are some doctors at Stanford, um, Karen Fridays, one person whose name I've, I've heard um, okay, I have something to learn about you. Uh, she, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen that at Stanford. Yeah, so it's like the same thing in the in the you know specialty centers. They keep themselves very narrow focused, which you know is what they do. Orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. 
Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, everybody for your questions. Sonja and Leah, thank you so much for your extraordinary work in Lyme disease, your leadership in functional medicine, and your work together with your wife as an equal partner in your work in Lyme disease. Thanks also for being my partner in my new school, in the first new school conversations where I have not been able to speak to mm -hmm. you due to this cold and cough. And special thanks to my colleague, Kira Epstein, for not only translating, but also for adding many questions of value. This has been a truly extraordinary conversation. We know many people will benefit from hearing about your work and from learning about both Lyme disease and functional medicine. Sundra Swag, physician and leader in functional medicine and the treatment of Lyme disease, thank you for being with us at the new school. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Sunja Swig and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.